We make decisions every day, but these days those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. David Shulkin. He is the former Secretary of Veterans Affairs, overseeing the largest healthcare system in the country, and the former CEO of a couple of big hospitals, Beth Israel Medical Center in New York and Morristown Memorial Hospital in Morristown, New Jersey. Having overseen such large healthcare systems, he is uniquely positioned to address the decisions that hospitals are needing to make. The audio on this episode is a little bit lower quality than we'd like due to the fact that we were remote recording, but thanks for your patience. It's worth a listen to this conversation with Secretary Shulkin. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Glad to be with you. Since things are moving so quickly, could you start with just giving us a brief update on where things stand, um, particularly in the United States with respect to hospital capacity, staffing, and equipment? Yeah. Sure. The data on hospitalization is sometimes very hard to get a true handle of. The CDC does report on data, but it generally is over a week behind and only includes about 10% of hospitals that voluntarily report. So getting data sometimes has to come from a number of different sources. But overall in this country, we are at about 11.5 admissions for every 100,000 people. And of course, that varies considerably by the region you're in. There, as we talk today, there are 42,000 patients with COVID infections in U.S. hospitals. The largest state, of course, is New York with 18,600 admissions. About 5,000 of those are in the ICUs. And then the states quickly trail off. Some states like North Dakota only have 13 patients in the hospital with COVID. So it's a, it's a big uh, variation here. And uh, fortunately, we've not really exceeded our capacity, even in New York, where the hospitals have done a really good job of creating surge capacity. And many of the new sort of pop-up hospitals, like at the Javits Center or the Navy ship that's in New York, are not very busy at all with just a few patients. And so the traditional hospital system has been able to deal with the needs of the patients at this point right now. Have we been successful in flattening the curve? And that's the lesson to be learned there? Or do we need to continue to ramp capacity in hospitals? The job of a hospital leader is to plan for the worst case scenario, because being in a situation where you can't meet patients' needs is really the very, very worst case scenario that an administrator could ever have. So I think that our hospital leaders did the right thing. They created surge capacity about 40 to 50% additional capacity in their current hospital footprints, including ICU beds. Secondly, they uh, did establish backup plans to be able to create alternative locations, whether they're in ambulatory centers or putting up tents outside uh, so that they could deal with it. They tried to address staffing as best they could, which is a whole separate issue about the challenges of staffing during pandemics. These pandemics come on very, very quickly, so you can't wait until you need the capacity or you need the planning. You have to really do that ahead of time. And 
many of the other hospital systems around the country have been doing that as well. And they just haven't seen yet the number of patients that New York and New Jersey have seen. And what would you say are some of the big lessons learned uh, thus far in you know New York, where it's been the, the center of the COVID crisis? You know, the hospitals have done a very good job of creating capacity. And I think that um, for a variety of reasons, including very vocal uh, government officials like the governor in New York uh, speaking out and and really making sure that resources are delivered and staff are delivered when uh, when it looked like that may be a problem, uh, that that was very very helpful. But the big issue that you know continues to plague us is uh, the, on the staffing side and why so many of the healthcare workers are getting sick. I'm also very concerned about the supplies in the hospitals that are running short that no one's talking about. Everyone's talking about ventilators and protective equipment, but very few people are talking about the uh, shortage of tubing for ventilators and the IV tubing shortages and the drugs that uh, people may not realize are increasingly in very short supply and scarce supply, including things like uh, antibiotics and analgesics for anywhere from Tylenol to morphine and some of the um, uh, even more common drugs that are used in intensive care unit settings like vasopressors and other drugs that come from particularly China or India that have put an export uh, an export ban on the United States for um, uh, a number of their APIs or active pharmaceutical ingredients. And this has really exposed some pretty severe deficiencies in our supply chain here in the United States. Speaking of that supply chain, how do you expect the supply chain for medical equipment is going to change as a result of the crisis? And, and how do you think our relationship with China is going to affect that? I think that in general, as people look back upon this crisis and see what we could have done better, uh, supply chain is going to be one of those issues that comes to the forefront. I think that there's going to be a much more deliberate approach to decreasing our reliance, particularly in the areas of pharmaceuticals and other supplies. And while even uh, if you take the ventilators, which I do not believe we're going to have a major shortage of with all of the efforts that are being undertaken right now. But if you take a look at ventilators, while many people think that they are produced in the United States, uh, one of our largest suppliers, for example, a U.S. company builds them in Ireland. But if you take a look at how many countries need to be involved in building that one ventilator, it's 87 countries that the different parts of that ventilator come from. So it shows the interdependence of a global supply chain. And that's not a bad thing. I, you know, I think that that's a reality of, of the complexity of the world today. There's a lot of competing factors, I think, for hospital administrators. On the one hand, they certainly need to treat patients. They need to keep their employees safe and healthy. And they also need to stay solvent and not go bankrupt. And it would seem that those three imperatives are potentially in tension with one another. Could you walk us through how you recommend an administrator think through those different variables? The interconnectedness of all those issues is so tight that one can't focus on one of those areas without focusing on all of them and making it work. 
So let's just take them uh, a little bit separately. The areas that we've seen the most challenge with has been clinical staffing. And what we know from past pandemics is that at the peak of your pandemic, you were likely to have 40% of your workforce that is unable to come to work, either because they themselves are sick, they may be at home caring for somebody who needs their help, or frankly, just fear of coming in to a clinical environment because of personal safety or risk to their family is too great that people aren't able to come to work. So I think that we've seen the challenge on the labor side, particularly since COVID-19 is a respiratory infection, so that it's very focused on particular clinical specialties of, of the hospital. You have nurses who have ICU training, respiratory therapists, and physicians who have both ICU and ventilator management training. So it's a relatively small segment of your workforce that can do very specialized care. The equipment issues have gotten a lot of attention, particularly ventilators and personal protective equipment and some categories of drugs. And while they are significant, I think we've done a very good job of managing that situation. So far in this country, no patient has uh, died because of inability to access a ventilator or, or uh, other hospital resources. The ventilator sharing program that was announced just recently by the White House, which already has uh, identified 4,000 ventilators that could be moved from one part of the country to another from only 20 health systems indicates that the real issue here has been a mismatch between supply and demand and that when these sharing mechanisms become available, I think that we will have no problem being able to meet the needs of patients in this country unless something unforeseeable happens, of course. Uh, secondly, on the financial side, this is where, again, you're seeing very significant geographic differences with um, hospitals that have not seen a lot of COVID patients, but that have reduced their uh, elective admissions, elective surgeries, have closed their ambulatory practices, their ancillary services like radiology and lab testing because of the stay-at-home orders and because of the concern for protecting uh, patients and flattening the curve. They've seen significant losses of revenue and have had uh, big financial consequences because of that, uh, leading to furloughs and layoffs and changes in their uh, budgets uh, with having to reforecast their budgets and changes in their cash flow plans. So uh, there have been significant implications, and it's not clear that that's um, going to ease up anytime in the near future for hospitals, particularly many of the not-for-profit hospitals run on generally small margins, and they've already seen their cash flow uh, deviate significantly from what the expectations are, having causing them to do reforecasts of not only their 13-week cash flows, but also their longer-term budgets for the year. And I think that they're still making assumptions. I think that many of the elective surgeries, particularly in orthopedics and cancer-related care, uh, will likely ultimately be a delay rather than cancellation. And the number that I use to uh, give a conservative estimate is, is that 75% of that volume that had been scheduled will likely come back to the original source, to the original hospital when it's safe to come back. And of course, uh, you need to think about the non-operating revenue. Many of our health systems, particularly not-for-profit health systems, relied heavily on their uh, investment income so that they could help supplement either capital projects or, in some cases, operating revenue. 
And that I think it's likely to be safe to predict is going to be very different than it was prior to the COVID infection, unless the economy comes back very, very quickly. I did want to ask a little bit about the PPE, um, especially in light of the post that you posted on your blog yesterday. And, you know, admirably, you've been quite obsessed, it sounds like, with thinking through how so many of our healthcare workers have, have gotten sick. Is it fair to conclude that the virus is more contagious, more powerful than we than we thought it was? I noticed you wrote that it was found uh, on people's sneakers. We, at first, of course, were told by the World Health Organization that this was not a airborne illness, where I think today we believe that it certainly is an airborne illness that could be found in the air. And I have been very disturbed by the inability of protective equipment by our healthcare workers in particular and first responders to be effective. We're seeing large, large numbers of first responders and healthcare workers coming down with the COVID infection. In Italy, 20% of all healthcare workers uh, got sick. The Department of Veteran Affairs now has more than 1,500 of their workers who have uh, contracted COVID-19 when there's only 4,000 veterans who actually have come down with the infection and uh, 13 of those workers have already died. Despite the usual way of using protective equipment, we have found viral particles on people's necks where the gowns typically end. We've seen it on the wrists where the gloves typically uh, end on the lower part of the pants where the gowns usually do not reach. And as you mentioned before, on the shoes as well. We have to be using things like face shields. We have to be using uh, protective hoods or special filtration masks for those workers who are doing the work that heavily involves secretions and intubations and ventilator management. We need to consider adding neck guards. We need to consider adding shoe coverings. Now, the CARES Act has $100 billion in relief to hospitals. I, I believe $30 billion was expected to be distributed this week, although, of course, um, things are evolving quickly. How might it affect the choices that uh, administrators are making? The CARES Act is going to be helpful, but it certainly is not going to be a complete replacement for many systems. And, of course, as I've said many times, this is going to really be dependent upon where your specific geography is and what payer mix you have. But you can think about the CARES Act right now. I think it's a $127 billion program, although $27 billion is um, directed in many ways towards specific agencies and, and government organizations. So if you take your rough number of $100 billion, that will be distributed to the provider community, including hospitals. As you mentioned, the first $30 billion has already begun to flow. Last week, hospitals and health systems began to receive those checks. And the way that that works is, is that uh, HHS uh, last year in 2019 uh, spent $484 billion for the providers in this country. And so they've made $30 billion available. So the ratio of $30 billion over the $484 billion is approximately 6.2%. So if you take a Medicare provider's revenue from last year and you multiply that by 6.2%. That's the size of the check that they will receive or already have received. And they're doing this in order of highest Medicare revenue 
towards uh, the very end, towards the lowest. So the big systems have already started to receive this, and these checks will continue to go out over the next month. Uh, this money is relatively unhindered in that it will not need to be repaid back, and it can be used for a number of different categories of lost revenue, uh, but it can also be used for things like construction, leases, medical supplies, and labor. As long as it's accounted for, if you get more than $150 million in Medicare revenue a year, the law requires that Health and Human Services uh, over the next three years has to come in and conduct an audit to make sure that that money was used appropriately. But it gives you pretty broad latitude. The next category after that $30 billion was meant to be $34 billion, and that was for advanced payments. This is not free money. This is money that will be advanced to providers who needed it and expected it for cash flow. But there will be an adjudication so that that money will be brought back as Medicare services are delivered. Uh, that has actually been extremely popular. Many systems and providers have requested advanced payments, so they've had to increase that from $34 billion to $51 billion. And the final piece of the $100 billion is money that will be directly paid out for the treatment of COVID-19 care. And this is where it is expected that your DRG or your case-based payment for Medicare will have a 20% additional payment to be able to help offset some of the cases since COVID cases are not thought to be generally as profitable as many of the elective or surgical cases that hospitals rely upon. So that 20% extra payment will be particularly useful for those hospitals that are seeing a lot of COVID-19 patients. And the only other thing I would add is, is that just in the last week, the administration has announced that it will be okay to bill for uninsured patients uh, using the CARES Act. And that's a considerable change because you've never been able to bill Medicare for uninsured patients. But in this case, you will be able to use the Medicare rates to be able to bill for that. So for those hospitals that are in underserved areas or serving a lot of uninsured patients, that will be a particular help as well. I think that we're seeing how tightly intertwined a strong healthcare system is to the economy and why this is so important that there be support in uh, extraordinary circumstances like this. So you will see additional funding requests, particularly for safety net in rural hospitals. North Dakota, the entire state has 13 patients in the hospital. So you see that a hospital administrator would not necessarily be overwhelmed, but they are preparing and planning because they don't have the flexibility to bring in additional staff and create um, you know, ventilators by sharing them with hospitals nearby because the facilities are so distantly located from each other and they're not big to start with in general. Unless uh, one of the smaller hospitals belongs to a system and the system can really share uh, resources with staff and equipment, it needs to rely upon local government coordination of those resources or public-private partnership. And of course, hospitals are going to be facing new financial pressure. Can you speak to the pressures that hospitals will be on for the indefinite future and how that will affect the choices they need to make? Hospitals that had large capital projects planned or had hopes of doing large capital projects are almost certainly going to need to evaluate those and determine that there's still 
essential and viable projects to go forward with because uh, not only, as we mentioned, will operating revenue be under great stress, but non-operating revenue as well. And then finally, many hospitals rely upon philanthropy for capital projects, and there's a good chance that philanthropy is going to be under great stress as well. So I think that uh, it, it will be a time to be able to sit and reflect and make sure that we are designing programs, particularly capital projects that meet the needs in the future. But I do think that many people are going to look at the deficiencies that they have with infectious disease um, prevention processes in their current physical plants. Most hospitals had a shortage of isolation rooms or what we call negative pressure rooms. Many hospitals are built with large open spaces, particularly all of our nursing wards that do not allow for proper social distancing. It's no different than what the business community is going to need to look at in terms of office space design. I think uh, the world will change. That's what pandemics do. They change worlds economically, sociologically, in the way that business is done, in the way that healthcare is delivered. And this one's not going to be any different where people are going to be rethinking the world under a different set of assumptions. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for your time. This was a a fascinating conversation. Appreciate your service and and your uh, spending your time with us today. Glad to be with you. That was Dr. David Shulkin, former Secretary of Veterans Affairs and former CEO of Beth Israel Medical Center and president of Morristown Memorial Hospital in Morristown, New Jersey. David told us that the job of a hospital leader is to plan for worst case scenarios. So their ability to increase capacity, whether through adding ICU beds or building alternative locations, saves lives. David's main concern was healthcare staffing, not having enough personnel to address this crisis at its peak. This could stem from healthcare workers getting sick themselves, or those who have someone at home to care for, or those who might be afraid to enter a clinical environment because of personal safety or risk to their family. He stressed that it's clear our current protective equipment, even when supplied, isn't quite enough to ensure full safety for our healthcare workers. When I asked David about how hospitals might change, I thought his answer was profound. Quote, I think the world will change, he said. That's what pandemics do. They change worlds economically and sociologically in the way that business is done and in the way that healthcare is delivered. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors with another one of GLG's council members. Please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there and thanks for listening.